welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Larissa Pelkington from the Houston Forensic Science Center. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hello, Glenn. So, Glenn, do you feel a unexplainable urge to go to Denver or to Las Vegas? Mm, Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Do you get the reference? That's, that's, that's a... That's a deep cut reference to the, the, the stand. If you remember, that's where the two groups of good and evil went right. after the super plague. Yes. Uh, no, so. I, I would love the opportunity to go to Vegas uh, during, <laughs> during the stand. All right. Sounds good. Um, so uh, first off this week, uh, I want to give a, a shout out and thank you to Shelly and to Jason for being our newest Patreon members. Uh, so they're contributing a couple bucks every month uh, to uh, to our fund to keep uh, you know all the servers and going and the web page and uh, help out with new equipment. In fact, Jason sent an email that was really nice, so I wanted to to read it out to everyone here. He said, uh, "Thank you both for the podcast. I wanted to let you know that listening to your podcast is helping our agency justify limiting our in office exposure during the pandemic." Thank you for helping keeping us safe. Yeah, that's very nice. In similar vein, I'm going to throw out a, f- oh, yeah, uh, yeah. a, a freebie shot for the London Met, the uh, Scotland Yard fingerprint examiners. We mentioned them last episode as a shout-out, but we're going to give another shout-out. That's how much oh. we love our international <laughs> listeners, and they probably weren't expecting a second shout-out. But Okay. But we do appreciate our listeners, and I got something for you, too. We haven't said this in a while, but if if listeners do listen to us through iTunes, we really do appreciate if you can go to iTunes and rate the podcast. We used to yeah. have a, try to remind listeners, hey, hey, please, we, we really could use the ratings on iTunes. So I was actually reading a few of the comments and reviews. Oh, we got some new on ones? That. Well, I've, I don't know if it's a new one, but I thought you'd appreciate this one. It, sure. It's, it's very, very nice. It surprises me no one has yet left a review. I enjoy the podcast topics, and the hosts are kind of funny at times. I assume this. <laughs> I assume they're talking about me. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you'd be the funny, and I'd be the kind of, or something like that. <laughs> the content is relevant and insightful. I enjoy the different points of view from each host based on their positions and vantage points, which can differ at times. Thanks for talking and sharing these ideas with others in the field. One star. <laughs> I thought it was great that it was a one star review. <laughs> I, I assume that that was just an error, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're really, really, really critical. You know what? I appreciate what you guys are doing. But you can do better. This is <laughs> apparently this is room, a lot better. Room for improvement. Room for growth. <laughs> <laughs> One star. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just that just really tickles me. So another thing I want to mention, and this is, you know, as as we're all kind of going through this uh, this quarantine procedures, not really getting out to be able to see uh, all of our colleagues. Conferences are being canceled, stuff like this. I thought, you know, we should have a place where we could go hang out, and you know, not maybe just not talk about fingerprints, but just hang out, maybe have a a beer or a glass of wine. 
Uh, a lot of companies I'm hearing are doing uh, virtual happy hours. So uh, I think a good place for this to happen is uh, a service called Discord. Uh, D-I-S-C-O-R-D. So that's an app that you can download to your PC or your uh, phone uh, or even just access it through a web browser. So I set up a a Discord server for latent print examiners and it does both text and audio chat. I think you can do video too, but that kind of has to be set up. At least the easy stuff is is either text or audio. And it's a place for people to come and hang out. So couple ways to find it. Uh, first is you can go to the doubleloopodcast.com website and you can look for it there. You can also go and look on our Twitter account. If you go back a couple weeks, you can see the uh, the original link uh, that was posted there uh, when I started it up. And when this episode launches, I'll, I'll also include it in the Twitter post for uh, for this episode as well. But uh, essentially, you can text with, with the other uh, latent print examiners or the people with you know interest in the field, uh, or even get into different voice channels to chat there. And we're going to set up a specific happy hour time from 8 to 10 p.m. on Wednesdays Eastern uh, Daylight uh, Savings Time, which is 5 to 7 p.m. on the uh, the West Coast, and kind of you know extrapolate from there if you're in different parts of the world. And, uh, you know, we'll start with that, kind of see how it goes. And, uh, you know, hopefully this is a, a way to uh, let people stay connected with each other uh, with uh, with different conferences or other events, um, you know, being much more limited. And people even working from home and not even be able to see other people in their even, you know, state or, or city that uh, work at other agencies. So, uh, Glenn, you, you've got some experience with Discord. Is this a good way for people to stay in touch? Yeah, I've used it for video and for audio, and the video is pretty good. If you're familiar with Zoom, it's not quite the same quality as Zoom. Zoom is actually, in my view, the best quality for meeting online, uh, but it's it comes at a cost. I think it's like 15 bucks per month, whereas Discord right. is free, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I've done a little bit of online gaming with, with Discord. It's uh, definitely uh, very popular with the nerd community, and all my nerdy <laughs> friends are are into discord that was that was a funny thing from when i got that set up uh the other week talking with you know our super fans uh, uh becca and uh carrie you know who help run our our twitter and instagram stuff they're all over the twitter and instagram <laughs> and, and we struggle with that they had never heard of discord and had no idea <laughs> how, to, how to get that set up so it was just kind of a funny uh, dichotomy there yeah, they had never heard of it, which I went, wow, I, how, how do I know this thing that, <laughs> like you said, in the, in the digital environment that they are unaware of, but yep. because yep. we're nerds. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I've been doing some, you know, some other stuff like this, you know, trying to play games with friends. There's a website called Roll20 where I set up like a card room to, it doesn't like, you know, control the rules or anything. You just play cards onto a virtual table. And- Do you say Roll20? Yeah. Oh, that's what we use for our online gaming. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that's it's I think primarily used for you know for more of a role playing kind of thing. Yeah. The you can customize decks of cards uh, to use for different card or board games. So we've oh. been doing more of that aspect of it cuz that's the kind of games I play with my brother and our friends. Not cool. Another uh, apps, uh Ticket to Ride and Tr- Terraforming Mars, all these great, you know, board games that have been ported over to to the phone. Oh, and and some <laughs> some some mario kart on uh on the phone as well i got i got that new app so 
uh just too many uh you know time waster games i guess but trying to stay sane through the whole quarantine process so this week we're going to be talking about a paper coming out of the houston forensic science center it came out uh, last year in the journal forensic sciences it's called implementation of a blind quality control program in a forensic laboratory by callan hundle uh, madison newman alicia raritan precious raritan and peter stout this is basically uh, in Houston, you know, kind of almost right when they got started out of the gate, started moving towards doing blind quality control testing. And uh, this is the article summarizing their, their successes, their challenges, what they've learned so far through that whole process. Right. So why don't we discuss what blind quality control means? This is where the analyst is working a case that has been created by – quality the quality unit the quality assurance unit it looks like a genuine case but the analyst is unaware that it is in fact a test case with basically a sort of ground truth we'll we'll discuss what that means in a little bit but these are fake cases that are that appear in every aspect as genuine cases and the analyst is generally unaware that they are these test cases right so as part of a uh, accreditation, you know, all labs are that are accredited are required to do uh, a proficiency test for all of their examiners uh, in you know, whatever they're doing, but they know that it's a test. Uh, a lot of times this is purchased from an outside vendor that, you know, builds, creates, and sells the test. And we talked uh, last year uh, about this for a bit, about maybe how some of those tests are too easy. Uh, we talked about that with Brandon Max, right? Yes. And uh, I think even in that discussion, we discussed some of the benefits that would come along with blind testing uh, in that whole process. Correct. So this is not replacing the existing you know, official proficiency test where the examiner knows that it's a test. Uh, this is in addition to that. Right. And one of the things that the paper discussed is that their goal was to have approximately each month each section get exposed to about 5% of their cases, which uh, uh, personally it seemed a little a little high to me. Kudos to them if they can accomplish that. But they didn't want it too high and they didn't want it too low because if you're trying to get statistics out of these things or have really good representative sample, especially if you're trying to calculate error rates, false positive, false negative error rates, you're going to need a decent number of cases going through the system to be able to calculate those things or, or it will take a decade you know, to, to be able to do it. So it's this balance between how many cases do we try to get through, but they chose 5% as their target mark, which meant creating – well, in fact, ultimately they created – well, they submitted 973 cases through a laboratory system, and 901 were completed uh, by the laboratory within a three-year time frame, 2015 to 2018. Uh, and to be clear, 5%, that is basically 5% of all the tests that they're doing for that unit are these blind proficiency tests or blind quality control tests. Uh, and like you said, that that's a, that's a pretty significant number. Uh, you know, all told, and you know, pretty much, but pretty much ensures that everyone's going to get something like that, you know, multiple times a year. Yeah, good point. I mean, if you've got a really large section, you might need that many cases to ensure that everyone's involved at some point, whether they're a verifier or initial examiner, 
or involved in a technical review because it's not just testing individual examiners' performance. It's testing the entire system from uh, intake in the section all the way through reporting out as well. So every aspect of your quality assurance program is going to be part of that testing. All right. So let's let's cover the, the areas that were involved in this test. Uh, so that basically the entirety of the lab, but that includes uh, toxicology, seized drugs, uh, so you know, drug chemistry or you know, uh, drug testing, firearms, latent prints, both the processing and the comparison parts of latent prints, forensic biology, and multimedia, which they have as both uh, digital and audio video. So obviously we're going to focus, you know, on on latents in our discussion here, but we're going to you know, touch on on other areas as well in in this whole discussion. Right, and for just numbers purposes, given that this was over, I think it was a three year period for the processing, and maybe a two year period for comparisons, or maybe it was two years and one year. But in this time frame. It was forty. It was a total of thirty-four cases that were completed for processing, and one hundred and seven cases for comparison. So, if you will, one hundred and forty-one total cases for processing and comparison. So, like you you mentioned here a minute ago, one of the challenges is this is you know this is basically the this is the entire process, right? In order to truly be a blind test, you have to enter into the 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 laboratory system without anyone knowing or being able to tell that this is a test and that it's different from just any old case coming into the system. So this involves quite a bit of work to successfully implement and you have to, you know, create the test, but then put it into, into the, you know, the evidence envelope, have a request form with, with a case number that goes into the limb system and have it associated with an actual officer. And I mean, there's a lot that has to go into it with, you know, I mean, a suspect with the date of birth and, and, and all this stuff has to go all into the case, uh, to then, so that it looks just like a, a real case when it actually arrives at the analyst. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about the paper was how much detail they went into about creating these cases and all the different nuances and problems. You know, they went so far as to have a fake name generator. I mean, that's something I never would have thought of that, you know, you you probably probably shouldn't use Bart Simpson-esque like names, you know, Amanda Hug and Kiss or, you know, IP Freely as your names. They they need to be genuine and authentic sounding. And they went so far as to also create fake driver's license numbers as well and use Google Earth to look at addresses within the Houston area and submit realistic addresses that could be uh, you know, submitting. They had to contact various police officers and have them active submitters or at least give them their eventually uh, give them permission to submit under them so they would be the contact case officer and they they really had to take extreme steps to fool the system because i mean they're an accredited laboratory and anyone listening in this part of an accredited system knows that you have all these things in place all these rules and all these controls in place to ensure the quality and integrity of your evidence 
And so in, in this kind of testing, you're doing everything you can to create fake evidence, to falsify evidence, <laughs> right. and get it through the system, which is designed to make sure that the evidence has actual integrity. So it, it is counterintuitive that the rules that you've got in place to ensure all those things, you are trying to circumvent all those rules. And yeah, that's that's then that's just step one, right? For for all of these different uh, units. Yeah, as as you say, for all the different units, it's one of the things I also appreciated. They recommended was doing this a little bit at a time. So they started with yeah. some units first. They didn't do everyone all at the same time. They started with some first, learned a little bit about what worked and what didn't, and then had to change the submissions a little bit for later. So, for example, toxicology required a driver's license, but some of the other sections didn't. They actually had to create a partnership with their temperant division, agency that runs the temperance, and be able to submit fake cards into the APHIS system. So for some agencies, that's a non-starter right there. They just don't maintain their APHIS, and if you can't get buy-in from the... APHIS division, you're not going to be able to put these fake source cards into the APHIS database. Luckily, they were able to. But that's one of the things they also talk about was how important it was having these partnerships with police officers, with the Temperant Records Division, with all these different agencies to be able to make this work. And, and it was different for every section. So uh, before we fully jump in with latent prints, let's, let's do – uh, toxicology and uh, and uh, seize drugs, you know, drug chemistry, uh, as the first two, um, to to just touch on briefly. So toxicology was you know the the one they started first, maybe because it just seems like the 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 easiest one, the one with the least amount of you know significant issues that would have to have been overcome, and you know, they basically get in you know, pre-made blood tubes with a known concentration of alcohol in the blood vials to then, you know, take and uh, take off of the, you know, the existing label, get it all labeled up and looking like the rest of the evidence to be then submitted in uh, through, you know, the evidence chain so that it finally arrives at the examiner. With the, uh, the drug unit, they did a few different things. They would either get drug standards from external vendors uh, and then, uh, mix them up with some other stuff to make it look like real drugs and not just super pure drugs, but then also sometimes use drugs seized in other cases that it's ready for destruction to then you know, bring it into this quality control process. All right, so for uh, getting into latents now, this is one of the longer sections where they put in a lot more detail explaining kind of how this was going to be set up because it's obviously a lot harder than just, all right, here's some drugs and now it's in this box and here, analyze it. And there you go, because we know what the drug is. And it's got to be also both aspects, both the processing and the comparison side of things. So uh, what they uh, ended up doing is, at least for the, let's start with the processing side of things. So for that, they would uh, clean off a surface of some item that would normally be coming into the lab ready to be tested for fingerprints like an aluminum can some sort of tool or food container or a cell phone after getting it real cleaned off put fingerprints on it from you know a worker in the in the lab that's volunteered to be a donor of fingerprints uh, and then you know submit it in to the process now if 
at the end, the examiner actually generates and, and finds fingerprints on that item. It's deemed to be a pass. However, since fingerprints, you, know, you can't really guarantee that if you touch something, a fingerprint's going to be left behind. They uh, determine that it's successfully completed if they process it, do not find fingerprints, but have gone through the correct sequence of processing steps uh, in, you know, that then didn't generate uh, a latent print to be found. So obviously there's some limitations in in the method that they kind of you know came up with. So basically it's it's really hard to fail that portion of the test, that processing portion of it. However, it's kind of hard to consider other ways to do this. So Glenn, thoughts on the processing aspect of this? You know, Eric, I had I have a very small list of little limitations in this study, and that that actually was one of them as well. That because they don't have what appears to be, I mean, again, just going off of this article, they don't appear to have any mechanism for in casework reviewing cases for negative results when it comes to processing. In other words, having another examiner review the evidence, although. One thing I thought was that there wasn't any reason necessarily that they couldn't go back and look at a processed item that had been superglue fumed and reanalyze it with another analyst to see if there was perhaps latent prints that were marginally or maybe – or even just ones that were flat out missed. From my own experiences in our laboratory, this is something we had tested was where we had – one of our latent print processing technicians going through and processing evidence. And then over a six-month right. period, we went behind and then captured all the images of all the fragments and no values that were missed to determine what rate of them might have been assigned incorrectly into value and no value. And I believe that was somewhere around maybe 3% where there were some differences and probably 1% were like really clear, like, no, no, that was just a pure miss out of thousands of images, mind you. So keeping in mind that, you know, if you've got a hundred images that analysts are looking at evidence under different lighting conditions and going through, you know, missing one out of a hundred in our view was actually fairly reasonable. That was a fairly reasonable error rate. Now, of course, laboratories always take the stand, no, if even one <laughs> is too much. Uh, given the amount of time that was spent on on that, I, I actually do believe that that was actually a pretty fair assessment of how many were probably being missed. And then you had a few borderline calls that could have gone either way. Sure. So I don't see any reason that the the folks in the study couldn't have gone back afterwards unless it's a paper processing technique that might have destroyed it okay you're not going to get those but if it's a final processing technique for non-porous surface i don't it, it could be reviewed i would imagine yeah that's true and uh, you know i remember doing that uh, to some extent when you know, reviewing you know someone's work that that you know came under question for one reason or other, whether it be training or or whatever, going back and just basically starting over, uh, you know, may uh, sometimes reveal new prints, and if those were revealed on a consistent basis, then that you know you know is raised up as an issue. So, you know, here they kind of stop at the well. At least did they follow the all the processing steps correctly? I think you're you're right. One of the kind of the little things, maybe you know, a way to improve is see if there's a better way to see not just if the steps were in the right sequence, but 
but that each step was applied correctly and and then no prints were missed in the photography process too. There's kind of both ends of that. If they were interested in going further, I think that would be valuable. I'd love to see that compared to our published data to see if that yeah. mirrors that or, you know, is it higher, lower, you know, is, is that you know we have we have no reference point because we don't know other agencies that have published those data right so then the comparisons uh, side of this for latents so the like you'd mentioned here earlier uh, they got access for um, uh, from Houston to put in five sets of record prints under fictitious names with fictitious information you know to be used for uh, for these tests now just to be clear here for anyone who isn't aware, Houston Forensic Science Center is run as separate from Houston PD. So they're basically a public-private partnership that has like a CEO that runs the whole forensic lab, and that's very much separate from the actual PD. There's a whole history of why that came to be, but skipping all that, they're separate. They had to reach out and contact and work with the PD to, to get these uh, these prints set up in their APHIS system. These five people are the ones used to create the latent prints uh, that are then you know, made to look like evidence, written on it with all the case information, the location of where it came from, just, you know, it, it comes on a Houston PD card. It just, it looks like evidence from a Houston PD officer and then entered into the process. So there's obviously some limitations there. You know, it, it's obviously, in my opinion, a really great start in this direction, but I think there's some some you know ways to improve this comparison process as well. And one of the first ones is just it's just the five people. You know, at some point, you know, late, late print examiners all have stories about at some point recognizing someone's fingerprint, and with only five people to you know kind of bring samples in from. I think that's going to start to happen uh, at some point in this process. So, yeah, Eric, I, I thought the, the same thing that, you know, it it was a, a small number. But, you know, to start off with, assuming assuming is a huge assumption, yeah. I've got, you know, 50 different fingers and joints and palms. I mean, you might be able to get a bunch of different samples out of that. I assume that they ran the gamut of fingers and palms and other areas. So you might be able to get a number of samples out of that. And if they're distributed amongst a large group of people and you ensure that the same people aren't getting the same kinds of cases or involved as verifiers, you might be able to get away with that. So I I take your point, but as a starting point, uh, and I assume that they can always add more, finding donors that were part part of the system, but quote-unquote not part of the system they talk about that how all their employees are fingerprinted and in, in, in the database so they needed to find donors that they could put in this database that would give permission for that but were not technically employees forensic scientists right because then they also had to have to limit it to burglaries or auto thefts you know property nonviolent crimes because otherwise because in their procedures they say you know those uh, offenses, latents from those offenses, just get searched in their local city database. They don't go to the state or to NGI. And um, you know, basically, any of the employees here, uh, if if um, you know, they would have their prints in the state and 
uh, and at the FBI. So if uh, their latent comes in as a more violent crime, it would get searched in these other databases and it would get found out. Right, right. Yeah, I you know they I I think they're doing the best as a as like you said as a start. Yeah. For for those circumstances. So I'm I'm going to share something with with listeners and you and I talked about this and you have some experience here too so we can share a little bit. This is something that I had attempted to do when I was working for the state of Minnesota. It was a very similar study where I was trying to get fake cases through the latent print division. And I ran into all the same issues that, that they ran into here. I, I really loved this article because it resonated with the same experiences that I had. Now, we never published, and I only got a handful of cases through. I think I ended up creating somewhere between 15 and 20 cases. And we'll, we'll get to time and resources a little bit later. But I found the same thing just – just starting – I actually started with five people as well. That's how many people I had because those were the interns that I had that I knew were not in the databases. We were a state agency, so I had to – I couldn't use people that worked for the laboratory because they would get hit in the database and that would alert the examiner they were working a blind case. And so I, I had a number of interns that I was using. And experienced a lot of the same little issues as examiners went through the cases. I had a lot of management of trying to make sure that they didn't have the same case. They didn't have the same person before. One of the things that we did was we had like they did in the article is we had a a couple of officers that were helping us out with this from a local submitting agency. Right. Who we had to create fake case numbers for, which – ICR numbers, case numbers, are federally tracked, so that was difficult. We had an examiner working a case that got a hit and called the officer saying, look, I got a hit in this case. Do I need to actually compare the other ones or can we stop here and then see you know, if there's a request for additional comparisons later? And so sometimes they might call the officer for additional information. And so we had to, I had to have this officer as a confederate in this, you know, understand what we were trying to do. We had to get buy-in. And he had a little speech that he would read when one of the fake ICR numbers would come up. He'd go, I'm sorry, that officer who worked this case isn't working right now. He's on the overnight shift, but I can ask him and get back to you. And then he would call me later and say, hey, what am I supposed to tell your guy? And so we had all these little things we had to work out that, you know, like the authors of this article experienced, it's really difficult to get those fake yeah. cases through. Plus, we were using lips that had you know case numbers on. But Eric, because we were using clear acetate <laughs> lips, right? <laughs> I and because they were using sharpies to mark up the list with case numbers. One of the things that we tried to do was erase the case numbers off with methanol and then resubmit the lift to a different analyst and different verifier, so we could right. get reproducibility data as well. So th- we could submit the same lifts a couple of times again to different people. But again, that required a lot of management, making sure that you got to that person and made sure that they used a different verifier. But then you couldn't be suspicious. Suspicious. You know, one of the things I, I realized in this is that the more digital an agency is, the easier yes. it is to do this kind of work. And at that time, we weren't as digital. We were digital, but not fully digital. 
mean, right. there are agencies that never even look at lifts that just work with digital images, like Phoenix Police Department or um, you know the Australian Federal Police. These are agencies that are just a hundred percent digital, and it's much easier to try to slip those case images in that way. Yep. Switzerland's another one, and and yeah, absolutely, point. I can I can absolutely see that that working much more smoothly when <laughs> when you can just you know give in you know this digital case file instead of having even what Houston's doing here is there's lots of paperwork they're having to to generate and create and and disguise. That was one of the things I I, I thought was really funny was how the analysts were catching on that they were fake cases. Uh, We haven't discussed that part of it yet, but a a certain percentage of these cases were detected by analysts uh, in the Houston Forensic Science Center. And one of the argument, or sorry, one of the reasons that they were catching them is because the handwriting was too neat. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought that was great. I cracked up. It just sent me back to remembering reading those uh, those requests coming in, and it was every variety, right? You'd have the very neatest handwriting, and you or on the lift cart itself, you'd got this great picture, like photorealistic drawing of of the vehicle where the lake came from, and then sometimes you'd get these drawings that you're just like, "What is that?" <laughs> My absolute favorite was over and over again, like almost every day, you could find. Uh, in the toxicology department, requests coming in with a vial of blood, V-I-L-E. Yes, V-I-L-E. <laughs> yeah, one, of, one of my favorite misspellings in the drug chemistry was that the suspect had hidden the drugs in her Gentile area. <laughs> I... I still have a photo of that. <laughs> uh, I remember another one that, that was, they just submitted item one, sword, S-O-R-D. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so were there any other steps that you you tried to implement beyond what they described here that, that you thought you know, may have helped or been you know somewhat successful in uh, in trying to do this very similar thing back then, a, a little bit smaller scale? No, as I said, in the end, we only got a few cases through the actual system, and it never occurred to me to try to submit 5% per month. I mean, we right, were we right. were just trying to get basically one case through for a month. I figured it'd take me a year just to get through these 15 cases, but then again, a few of them were going to go through multiple times was the idea. But no, I mean, everything that they tried were exactly things that I had run into, there, other than the fact that we were using, you know, the kinds of lifts that we could resubmit multiple times. Uh, it sounds like they were using probably white cards with black powder, and on the other yep. side, they were draw, having drawings and descriptions of the evidence so that they looked realistic like an officer in the field, so those are only going to be one-time use uh, images unless they somehow went to a digital image. So uh, I had given this some thought in in the especially in the months before I, I left uh, you know, my old job, and and you know just trying to consider at least for latents how this might work out. And there were you know like you said here some of these challenges come up right away, especially dealing with comparison. Is um, if there's a suspect listed on the card, you know how do you uh, the 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 examiner is going to go to the APHIS and print out their temperate record. So, you know, how do you make sure that every field on that temperate record looks like it 
you know, any other person in the system and not somehow special and flagged as being fake? Yeah. Or how do you, if you don't have a suspect in the case and it goes to submit for APHIS, how do you prevent it from hitting against that person's actual record? And, you know, if you have like a coworker in the lab, their prints are going to be in the state database. And where I worked, we, we fully encouraged, you know, submission of even uh, burglaries to NGI because of just how successful it was. And then you, so you have the same problem, you know, searching there. And even if you find someone that's never been arrested, you never had their prints taken for any, you know, applicant purpose and you ask them to be the volunteer what if they get arrested the next day for something crazy? You know, then w- what's going to happen? So one of the things I had kind of considered, and and I kind of I did some basic tests, but never really got past the idea stage, was that one way to kind of help with this, at least for latent prints, is to flip everything. So if you take a temperate card, you know, basically most of the time for temperate cards, they're going to be in the database digital. That's that's one part that is digital. So if you just take every finger and mirror image it and then move all the right-hand images to the left-hand, left-hand images to the right-hand so it, it looks real, it's it, you really can't tell that that mirror image was done. And then it's not going to hit against uh, you know that same person in the database because it's a total mirror image. Well, then the next question is, well, how do you do it for the latent print? So I yeah. did some, some tests and was able to was able to kind of prime my finger with some oils basically press it onto a uh, like a plastic ziploc type uh, bag and then flip that over and press that onto another surface and secondary transfer that impression and now it's a mirror image so very interesting that was all theory i mean so i i'd gotten to like the you know kind of real testing the theory of could this work and it theoretically worked now scaling that up to being five percent of the cases in a month i don't know about that but uh, at least you know testing out the theory could this work again the 10 print stuff side that's easy and should kind of keep that person anonymized even if they're already in the database yeah but then doing it on the latent side it's at least theoretically possible and and you know would definitely need some more research to see if that could suffice to to you know to kind of get rid of some of the major issues with you know going forward with a program like this yeah and that that's a that's a really good idea i i I like that i i was thinking in a digital environment it'd be easy to do that except not necessarily if you are trying to capture the scale in there you'd have to deliberately crop out the numbers on the scale so that you could reverse the image so people wouldn't be, you know, uh, so they wouldn't be any wiser that it had been reversed, although that would probably show up in the metadata. I mean, I, I'm thinking of all these little things. Yep. This is exactly what we're talking about, how how difficult it is to really do this. So that if someone investigated and went, whoa, looking at the metadata, it was clear that this this image has been, you know, reversed at some point. Or some agencies have a policy that you have to actually have the numbers and the scale in the photograph so that we know if you use an inch or a millimeter scale, you know, those kinds of things. Right. There, you know, there still is the chance that an examiner might, might search it uh, mirror image and then get back to the original. <laughs> yeah. Good point. You'd, you'd have to then put it onto a surface that where you wouldn't really expect it. So like on a knife or a gun, you don't really expect 
to need to do the mirror image search while on a plastic bag since it's it's transparent you might have taken the picture from the wrong side and the examiner might then you know be i don't know extra careful that day and then try it reversed but yep uh, but that that's the whole point is exactly this is this is not a simple thing to do <laughs> no it's not and and it's one of the things i really enjoyed about the paper was just how much time they spent talking about how complex this can be in contrast to many of the critics and we'll talk about some of the bias papers you know that say well why don't you just do this because it's actually <laughs> really hard it's really time consuming and it it's very it's very complicated so yeah i mean it it's that that, that is why it this is it's easy for them to write in one sentence laboratories should just do blind proficiency testing done yeah, it's much harder to do in practice so one last thing with latent prints before we move on to to the firearms and, and dna uh, I'm not sure if it jumped out to you as much as it did to me, but to, to get a basically a correct answer for the comparison side of things, uh, you made an identification to the, you know the the correct person that was supposed to show up in the uh, in the APHIS candidate list. However, I know where you're going. No exclusions, right? So, uh, you know, they're 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 just, basically they're not testing the exclusion or inconclusive technically. Uh, decisions in this whole process now again they believe they even mentioned that at the end where they talk about more borderline cases as as next steps in this process uh so you know again i don't want to take away from the absolute success that this paper is and this program is uh but there's there's definitely next steps that even they see on the horizon for what they need to do to to increase this program to cover more different scenarios yeah, this is something that I ran into with our cases that we were trying to get through. I went the opposite route. So Houston Forensic Science Center has this approach that they call preliminary APHIS associations. So every case coming in without a suspect gets launched into the database and they report an association. It's not an identification at this point. That's Basically, true. they report out a name, you know, the analyst is competency tested, but it's one fingerprint examiner who has basically said this is an identification and it will go out the door. Uh, so it, it has not gone through a verification procedure at this point. So it's it's a very APHIS intensive, hey, does this name mean anything? If it does, let us know and then we can go through a confirmatory process. So if listeners aren't aware of that, we've handled that in other episodes before. You and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It's an efficient no. way. And identifications are generally not the problem in the field. That's not where the errors tend to happen. So, okay. So one of the things that we experienced when we were doing this was we didn't start it as an APHIS case. I typically gave one of the cards of my five people. So it was a known comparison. And if it was a non-mated case, then they could go into the APHIS system and then search it and possibly hit one of the other four interns that I had put into the system. And if, and if that didn't happen, if I used uh, another person who was not any of the five, then we could also have a negative APHIS. So you could have actual exclusions and you could have negative APHIS results. But again, it requires you submitting a card and the known suspect with the case or as you say, Eric, being able to pull down a card from the APHIS system and having it look like an accurate card. So I think one one of the goals that, that I would want is that uh, an examiner 
never knows whether or not the case that they're currently working on is one of these quality control cases. Now, they've gone through a lot of steps to hide it, so it's not immediately apparent when it is a, uh, a test case. However, there's like, specifically for latent prints, there's some clues still there to let you know that it's definitely not a test case. Uh, the most obvious being if it's a murder, another violent crime, it's definitely not a test case. If you know you you if you go through you do a, a search through APHIS and you get you don't get a hit, odds are pretty good it's not uh, one of these test cases unless somehow the the APHIS system missed it, which would be somewhat unlikely, but it's still possible. So there there's there's these kind of outs where the examiner knows that it's not going to be this test and i think ideally at the end of this road once they've gone through you know all the steps that should be a goal is that any case the examiner is working on any work that they're doing they never know whether or not not just if it is one but also when it's definitely not one uh, of these test cases all right ready to move on to firearms sure so the firearm section is set up a little differently and as to you know what they're actually doing here in this process. So they've got two really ways to do this blind testing. Uh, one way is you know somewhat similar to everything else where they take bullets or casings or bullet fragments created by uh, the management uh, and put it then into this test process, very similar to everything else. But they also do... Uh, another process where some of their verifications are pulled out to be done blindly, where both the original examiner and the verifier conduct their analysis, reach their conclusions independently, and then come back together to see whether or not they reach the same conclusion. So uh, this is kind of rolling blind verification into this whole blind proficiency testing process, but... Yes. Uh, still good step, great way to, to check on how things are doing, especially I think for a unit like firearms, which has a, a much smaller volume than a lot of the other units in the lab. Yeah. And I suspect, this is my suspicion that if the latent print unit weren't just doing these preliminary APHIS searches in their comparison unit, that they would have been able to implement their blind testing procedures. Well, I mean, they still could, really, if you think about it, for like more violent crimes, they could do yeah. something very similar for for IDs or exclusions or really anything, and just before it goes to verification, have it pulled out and go through this blind process. Yes, but as I think your point being here is that firearms was able to look at a blind versus a non-blind approach, whereas the well, the latent print section wasn't able to in this but firearms was and i thought that was a pretty interesting section as well well and and that's one of the areas where they found some differences so while everywhere else it was you know did you reach the expected result for this half of firearms it was did you guys reach the same result and they had eight instances where they didn't and the way that they kind of judge this is, all right, you didn't reach the same result. Go back and look at it again and see if there's a, a consensus opinion that can be reached before going to a, a third examiner if that's not possible. Uh, and there were none that had to go to that extra step. They could all resolve the, the conflicting conclusion by just talking to each other again. Which, you know, critics will, will, will latch onto that, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. 
what the critics would say is, well, okay, you got this conflict, but then as soon as you're allowed to talk to each other, hey, the conflict goes away, and then everyone is, you know, it works it all out, and maybe there's some sort of bias or bullying or, you know, most experienced person wins. Who knows what kind of process in that? However, and they don't really specify in here, but there are these eight situations that led to this this initial conflict that then got resolved without needing to go to a third person. It seems like from the paper here, some number of those eight were actual blind QC tests where a ground truth was known and then, you know, correct. But there are there would then be some number that is actually of these blind verifications that were done on real cases where a ground truth just isn't known. Right. The, the point is some number were actually part of the blind QC with ground truth. We just don't know what number, but all of those resolved themselves without going to a, a conflict stage with a third examiner. And presumably those results were correct according to ground truth because they didn't result in some kind of QA flag. So DNA, they have in some ways similar challenges to latents in that there's all these rules about what can go into CODIS. Well, and, and with CODIS, you can't, you can't do the mirror image. That, that's just, <laughs> that, that will it's work. Not, it, it's not a 1214. It's a 1412. Right, right. Yeah. That, that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> so basically th- this part of the program is limited to the analysis and interpretation uh, portion of, of DNA analysis. They're, they're not able to do, you know, a, a full QC program on every part of DNA. And the specimens that they're using are knowns that are single source specimens and that they use to then create either the contact blood or buckle swabs, um, you know, for the actual test samples. So, uh, and even later on in the paper, they do acknowledge that, you know, that in the future, they want to ramp this up to include mixtures uh, and, and other aspects that, you know, it would be tougher to test for uh, for DNA, uh, but this is kind of where they're at right now. All right, so the cost in this. Glenn, you, you were talking about how much work it took for you to get up just the samples that you did. They identify in this paper that there's not a whole lot of cost necessarily, depending on what section, toxicology being the most expensive portion of it, getting up basically all those you know samples, blood samples. Latents being fairly cheap because you just kind of use what's on hand and people on hand to make fingerprints. But they they dedicate a number of people, and that's really the cost. Yeah, they're suggesting that for at least a lab the size of uh, Houston Forensic Science Center, uh, they have an entire quality division uh, with five, five people people working there. One of which is fully dedicated to this program, and then the other kind of partial work of the other four would basically combine to a second full person. So basically, you need two full time people just doing this to run the program. And that's, that's where the real cost uh, of this comes into play. Yeah, they, they break it down into physical costs, you know, consumables, which, like you said, toxicology, uh, the first couple of years ran about 16000 and then the last year they did it upwards of 30000 And so that, that's fairly expensive, whereas the cost for the latent print section over three years was $20, which uh, – <laughs> Comparatively speaking, although they, hey. <laughs> they they compare that to the cost of external proficiency tests from these providers, which was running about $6,000 a year. So, I mean, if you were to do away with your external PTs and use blind 
testing instead, but it's a huge cost savings on just the materials. And and that fits with what I observed. I mean, the the, the cost of the lifts and the you know the interns using their prints and all this. It really was a non-factor. It, it, it was completely in, inexpensive to do that, or to go to the garbage and pull out cans and other items and place prints on and lift from that. That that had no real cost, as you point out. It's the time, and we we did an analysis not in this paper but in another paper where we were looking at the cost of blinding and instituting blind verification in every case versus some cases and what the cost of that would be and how how much time it took for someone to go through and scrub all the information, prepare cases, basically be a case manager as some articles allude to where you've got a third party managing the information and giving cases to examiners, somewhat similar to what you have here in a, in a, in a way. We found that I, I think I reported for a laboratory our size for the state, it would take about four to five people, basically a full-time person per section. Now, they're not focused on having to scrub case information because their limb system already does that for them. They True. talked a little bit about how their limb system, especially their most recent upgrade, allows them to really control the information going down to the bench analyst, which – would have been would is a great tool and a tool I didn't have at my disposal. We had to basically scrub all the cases ourselves to remove all the reports and all the other kinds of information that would come in. So I, I appreciated that they say it would take two full time people to create all of these for an entire laboratory. That fits exactly with what I would estimate. Uh, that it would be a, if you had a latent print section and just did this for latent prints. This plus, depending on how much you scrub your cases and case manage and do blind verification, it's a full-time job. That's what I would estimate, and I would run that to be with benefits, average pay. They have to be someone who's technically proficient, so I would say at least an experienced examiner upwards of a technical lead. You're talking probably at least hundred to $150,000, including benefits per year. Yep, yep. Well, and and that's and there are two people not even just creating the test, but also you know administering, grading, you know all that kind of stuff uh, as well. Managing it, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, managing it's, it. Yeah, it, we came to the same conclusion that to do this properly and regularly, and institute a, a an extensive blind verification program was a really big cost. This was, I mean, in the scheme of things, you're talking about a, at least one person. Who could be another bench examiner? Now, right. again, critics of this, NAS-type folks, PCAST-type folks might look at that and go, well, that's the cost of doing business. You've got 100 employees working in your laboratory. What's two or three more managing a good blind quality testing program? Yeah, yeah. I, in, in, in light of things, I, I would tend to agree. It's not impossible. It's not insurmountable. But in the smaller agency where you really could use that third examiner to get through your casework, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's probably not going to work as a, as a blind QC person. Well, and, and here's also an opportunity for technology to, to step in and you know take on some of that load. So uh, like sure. you said here, you know some of the improvements in their limb system, you know allowed them to do this easier and probably, you know save maybe even another whole person that would have to do sc- information scrubbing uh, instead of just having the system automatically hide it. Uh you you may be able to 
you have something like this built into, if there was a comparison software suite, instead of just everyone using Photoshop, then that would also you know, start making this kind of thing easier as well. Yeah, and to that point, they found once they had this new limbs upgrade, they were able to hide some of the the officer information a little bit easier and less cases were being discovered as well. So uh, one of their summaries here I really liked was just the, these four key points. Uh, first, you got to get collaboration from all the stakeholders, uh, yep. like the, uh, the, the full police department, the officers that are going to help out, the APHIS system for the fingerprint folks. Theoretically, at some point, maybe even the, the CODIS system for DNA folks, if they're going to go down that road. You need analyst engagement. So they had this whole program of, hey, if you find a fake one, let us know you win a prize. I love and, that part. Uh, I, I love I, that part I, too. I thought it was great. So you can't just guess every case to win the prize because every time you guess wrong, you got to put a dollar in the pot. But if you guess yeah, correctly it. and it really is a fake case, you win like a, a Starbucks gift certificate kind of thing. So it, it, yeah, it was really a great idea to to help them identify, well, what's not working and how can we improve that to better disguise and hide and make these truly blind cases. Yeah, that was a brilliant addition to this research. It, it, I, I imagine it, it is kind of fun, and I imagine they probably use that pot for some kind of group activity or pizza <laughs> day. Or you know, I'm sure they're using it to some some good use. They don't mention what they put the penalty pot towards. <laughs> That's though. true. I was a little curious. I, maybe there aren't a whole lot of penal, of wrong guesses, but I don't know. Oh, there have uh, to be. So implementation right. Start slow. Start with one unit. Don't jump to every unit doing 5%. Like build up <laughs> to small numbers in one unit, then kind of r- start slowly ramping up, adding more units, slowly getting up to the percentage that you want to hit, whether that be 5% or, or, or other than that. Um, and then make sure the samples mimic routine evidence in every conceivable way possible and go through that entire chain of custody and submission process with no variation from what would happen in actual casework. Uh, so overall, I, man, this is a great paper. You know, this is a, a and a huge assist, I, I would hope, to lots of labs out there that start considering you know, moving in this direction. I think there's a wealth of information uh, of you know available to start to extract from. Uh, all these different units uh, as to accuracy and blind verification is the best way to do that. I mean, there's all these theoretical studies and, and you got the black box paper and noblest and all this stuff. However, if you can do this in your lab, you've got the best data available for how your people operate under your protocols. Uh, and that's going to be invaluable in supporting your conclusions in court. Yeah, Eric, I, first of all, I completely agree. I enjoyed this paper thoroughly, thought it was very well written, summarized things nicely. I suspect there were probably many, many stories, many anecdotes they probably could have shared, but I thought they summarized it really, really nicely. They also had another benefit that I'd like to mention. I'll just read from the paper. I, I thought it was a really good point, and this probably affects things more in, in sections like DNA or toxicology. Uh, If any unexpected changes in storage conditions were to happen, such as a refrigerator failing or some sort of environmental problem, then the results of the blind QC test cases affected by the temperature change as well, since they're in storage like the 
real cases could then be evaluated to determine the impact, if any, on the real evidence samples. I thought that was kind of a cool little benefit as well that you have these test cases that if there is any kind of accusation, well, your refrigerator failed on this weekend, so everything now is going to be suspect. Well, you got the samples to actually test that to see if that's true. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a great little kind of side benefit of having those test samples stored in the same place as all the real evidence. Right. And like you said, the partnerships that they developed were really important. And they they talked about that, how a laboratory cannot do this by themselves. I, I found the same thing. I had to contact multiple people outside of our agency, get buy-in. Uh, getting buy-in from our quality unit, from management, and it it was a hard sell. This was not a real easy thing to try to get through, and not everyone understood what I had wanted to do. And they sort of discussed some of those hurdles, but they seemed like they were able to successfully have lots of partnerships. Uh, Eric, uh, you can imagine if an agency really wants to do this, but they talk to their sieges people and go, hey, we need you to submit these cards. And some lawyer somewhere goes, nah, we don't want to do that. Done. I mean, there's nothing you can do. You're, yeah. you're at the mercy of some of these other agencies. And all it takes is a single lawyer to get involved, get asked, can we or should we do this? The answer will always be no. And, and that's – yeah, you definitely need that uh, that top-down – um, support to to make it move forward. For sure. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I think that's that's really great seeing this paper is thinking it back maybe, I don't know, eight years ago, ten years ago, to where Houston was at then yeah. and seeing where they're at now. Yeah, leader in the field. You know, the the, the, the that whole situation that, that evolved there, I believe it started with DNA tests and then, you know, questions came up with latents and then there was there was they found issues throughout the lab and there there were lots of questions that that came out of that it was a very tough time for uh for the Houston forensics and to see them now at the end basically taking those those problems and making something good come out of it is is really encouraging and i definitely applaud them for it yeah, and I'm going to throw a plug towards CSAFE here. CSAFE is the Center for Statistics and Applications in Forensic Evidence. This is this agency in Ames, Iowa, that a few years back got $20 million to develop statistical models and statistical foundation for forensic evidence. One of the authors is a member or was a member of CSAFE. I don't know if they currently are, but CSAFE had their hand in this. And we've been a little critical of CSAFE in the past, but I, I've got nothing but, but love for what they did with, with this particular paper in this experiment and it sounds like they as this program develops they're going to get more involved especially when it gets to error rate calculations and they talk about some future work with marginal cases we've got marginal latent prints or uh, some low template dna where there's minimal dna to generate a full profile and so some of the more marginal cases and how to handle Probably what we'll think of as the inconclusives and some of the limited value latent prints. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's, it's great to hear, and I can't wait to see uh, what phase two of this uh, all looks like. So, all right, Clint, any classes you want to mention here for later in the year after we're all released from quarantine? 
Right. So, I mean, everything's in a little bit of flux, and we're still trying to reschedule dates with those that were in the spring. Uh, so I'm just going to say generally go to my website, which is www.eliteforensicservices.com, or email me at glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at eliteforensicservices.com. I'm happy to point you in the direction of various courses that are upcoming. All right. Sounds great. If you want to email me, eric at rayforensics.com. If you have any thoughts on uh, on this program, or uh, if you are looking around for that Discord server that I mentioned as a place to hang out and do a virtual happy hour with other uh, fingerprint-minded folks, if you can't find it, just go and send me an email and I'll get you directed to the right place. But like I said, check our website, doubleloopodcast.com, uh, or our uh, Twitter feed, at doubleloopod. I'll put the link for that uh, in the uh, the notes for this episode, but also uh, in the, the Twitter post that comes out for this episode. We got merchandise. Go and check out doubleitpodcast.com for stuff like that. Uh, t-shirts, mugs, you know, all sorts of neat stuff that, uh, that also helps support the show. Anything that we say here is our own opinion and doesn't necessarily represent anyone that we work for. And with that, everyone out there, stay safe, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane.